Welcome to Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall, and you can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. Mine's Aaron Dugan. You can follow me on Twitter at the Aaron Dugan or Instagram, Aaron underscore Dugan. Special guest today on the show, author, AL.com, John Talty. John, how are you? Introduce yourself to everybody. Glad to be on here. Uh, as I was telling you earlier, it's been an, uh, it's been an interesting last uh, 24 hours or so. So I uh, only have, I'm not trying to give Homefield uh, some free pub here, but literally the only shirt I have on me right now. So, you know, we're, we're rolling with things. <laughs> A lot of travel. So the book, we'll do this right away. The book is The Leadership Secrets of Nick Saban. It is coming out in a couple of weeks. So make sure you pre-order it right now, everywhere you get your books. Ideally, maybe your local bookstore, maybe go do that at, at one of your local shops. Maybe the bookshop is a good one. Free shout for sure on that one. Um, but John, before we do any of this, we're going to talk about Saban. We're going to talk about the last couple of weeks, Destin, obviously all the things that you learned in researching this book and what makes Nick Saban the greatest coach of all time. And we'll kind of dive deeper into the psychology of, of, of who he is and how he got to where he is. Uh, but sure. we like to put our guests to work on the show. Okay. And, and we are sponsored by a sports bar in Nashville, the, the next evolution of a sports bar called Jasper's. Not and a normal sports bar. It's not a normal sports bar. And for, for Top Hospitality, which has got 13 locations across the Southeast, uh, servicing um, Huntsville and Jackson and Flowood and Memphis and all kinds of cool places with lots of great food. So I would like you to do the copy here uh, off the top of your head. There is no, there are no rules. So Fringe Element is brought to you, John Talty, by Jaspers. And I just need uh, to go for whatever yeah, I go. want to do from there. One go. time I called it the, the, the freshwater cactus of the South. Yeah. Wow. That's strong. So you're can you're go a writer. That, it's you're not. a creative type. Let's see what you got. So this, uh, this segment with John Talty brought to you by Jaspers, uh, <laughs> the best place you can eat in Flowood, Mississippi, no doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Flowood. I think that is a true fact. For sure. <laughs> this is how they want. This is this is the vision that they had when they started giving us money to sponsor their show. Like that, we were like, yes, the, the, the best restaurant in Flowood. That's yeah, that's, that's what, what their claim is. to fame is from how mm -hmm. I see it. <laughs> Not bad, um, honestly. Go to Jasper's. The parking is free. The game room is spectacular and free. You got the hot papa shot and air hockey and all kinds of great stuff. And of course, four top hospitality, 13 locations across the southeast serving all of you SEC football fans. Okay. So before we get into the book, real fast, um, John, do you think Nick Saban should have been suspended um, for <laughs> the way Ross Bjork thinks uh, for having some comments about the chaotic state of our college football ecosystem? No, I do not. Uh, I do not think that he should have been suspended. <laughs> Obviously, the SEC agreed by not suspending him. Uh, that whole thing is fascinating to me. I think my favorite part of it is that you know, Greg Senke has a conversation with Jimbo Fisher before that wild press conference. So like Jimbo already has in his head, like, Hey, I probably shouldn't go full crazy here. And then still was like, I'm doing it. And so that to me, I think that was one of the fun uh, revelations from those emails that came out that like people warned him basically don't do this. And he still did exactly what he did. <laughs> Can't say I'm shocked. No. And I, I think it speaks to, I mean, the fact that Ross Bjork uh, and the, Texan and president even submitted basically that ask for uh, suspension. I think it speaks to kind of the environment of that place. Like, you know, Ross is a very active person in terms of going after people. It's kind of a combination of those two guys. Like Jimbo wants to do it. And then Ross is like, yeah, go ahead and do it. Whereas other places, I think your AD might've stepped in and be like, maybe we shouldn't do this where it feels like 
feels like Ross was just like, yeah, go ahead and do it. Let's, let's see where this goes. And obviously it got pretty wild. I, I don't want to continue to rehash the entire thing. Cause it's sort of ironic that they actually just agree with each other on all of this basically. Um, and that nothing illegal was really done. What was the vibe in Destin? We talked to Ralph Russo last week on the show. What was the vibe in Destin from your perspective? And then, and then we'll start promoting your, your new product. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think people were waiting for fireworks and obviously they didn't happen. I think if that could have been kept behind closed doors for maybe another week or two, maybe we would have seen that play out more in Destin because I think it's something, you know, from what I've heard over the last few months, this is something that has been bothering Nick Saban for a while. You know, he has privately been grumbling to people, uh, even sometimes not so privately uh, about this situation. It was obviously bothering him for a while. So it kind of felt like he was not ready to explode, but he was ready to talk about this. And so he had an opportunity to do it in that World Games uh, famous uh, situation. But I think if maybe that didn't happen, it didn't leak out the way it did, maybe we would have seen more of that play out down in Destin. But it was very obvious that the SEC did not want that to overshadow the situation. And, you know, you could tell based on the comments that both Nick Saban gave and, you know, Jimbo Fisher over and over again saying, we're moving on, we're moving on, you know there was a reason why he was saying that. And I was strongly encouraged by the SEC to not pour more gasoline on the situation. Are we moving on to the book, Braden? Well, it's a perfect segue because I think chapter two of the book is basically how uh, Nick Saban is batshit crazy about recruiting. And that that is sort of the, I mean, again, and and you kind of write about this, John, like we all know that 80% of your job as a head football coach is recruiting in college football right now, especially at the highest levels. But like the way the meticulous nature, I think, was there anything that you learned about his approach to recruiting and building a program that 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 was new that you thought this was this? I can't believe this is the case. What is it that you learned about him about recruiting specifically? Because that's obviously what's driving all of his conversations about collectives. Yeah, and I was thinking about that before we talked to that. I, I do think if you read that chapter, you will understand why Nick Saban is so passionate and why he'd be willing to go against the guy who has worked for him in the past and, you know, by all accounts, had an okay relationship with. Certainly, they weren't firing bombs at each other. And he, I mean, whether he knew it was going to blow up the way it did, he certainly knew it would eventually get back. And he you know, had some pretty strong words. And so recruiting to him is everything. It's the lifeblood of college football, as we know. And I don't think anybody has embraced it quite the level that Saban has. And I think there's, there's multiple parts to it. I think one, and you see, you've seen some guys, you know, leave for the NFL because they don't want to deal with it. Like it's a constant grind. I mean, it's not for everyone. It's not a lot. It's not fun for a lot of guys. And the fact that he is still grinding the way he is at 70 years old. I mean, the man's won seven national championships He doesn't necessarily have to do that, but he still feels like, all right, this is kind of how I got to this level. I need to keep doing it at a certain level because there's always going to be somebody else trying to knock me off. And we've seen it with Kirby Smart, now Jimbo Fisher in the class he just signed. Like, There's always going to be people coming after Alabama. And so I think he knows he has to do it to a certain level. But I thought some of the the stories in there I thought were fascinating. Um, Just the fact that he's still so hands-on. I mean, he is... When you take a step back, he is running a massive operation here. You know, there's a lot of people involved, a lot of players involved, a lot of coaches involved. We've talked about, you know, and I read about in the book, he's got an army of analysts. There's just a lot of people he has to manage, but he still has basically decided, all right, this is the number one thing in our organization, getting the right players. Then I'm going to be personally involved in making sure that we get them. So I'm not going to, we're not going to offer any kids unless I'm okay with it. I'm going to watch the film of these kids before we're okay with it. And I'm going to you know, want to see them in person if possible with my own eyes before we take this kid. And I think there's just a lot of coaches 
especially the head coaching level that don't do that anymore. They get to a certain point where it's just like, I'll trust my assistants. They'll do it. And Saban's like, no, this is a, this is what it's all about. I want to be involved in that. And I think that's part of why he's so good at it. That Do you think that part of that is also, and obviously as coming from Alabama, you're not really having to sell your program at this point. It sells itself. But is that because Saban just trusts his own instincts more? Like, trying to figure out if that kid's actually a fit because you talk a lot about too about what he does to his staff in the hiring process. And these are actually, you know, they probably have some similarities. You know, he runs his staff through the gamut, I think is what you said. So why, what is that? Is that just because his instincts, he, he needs to know himself that it's going to be a fit? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think part of it, there's almost like a reverse sell to these recruits at this point, because like you said, at this point, you know, if you go to Alabama, you're going to have a really good shot to play in the NFL. If you make it to that level, you're going to have a shot to compete for a national championship, all these different things. And so they are able to be more selective at this point. And so it's almost more of a, are you sure you're built for this more so than like, we need you to come play for us. It's, you know, this is going to be incredibly hard for you. Are you sure that you actually want this? And so, and that's from an, obviously an incredible position of power that they can do that. You know, lots of other schools, you know, cannot do that. They just have to kind of take what they get. And I think Saban's able to say, if you come here, it's going to be the hardest thing you probably have ever done. But if you put in the work, we'll get you to where you want to be. And that's kind of the pitch that he has. And I think it's the same thing, you know, with the coaches, because, you know, people and a lot of people, as I interviewed during this book, told me this, as hard as, you know, it is for the players to play at Alabama, it's way harder for the coaches because, you know, there's, there's not as much direct saving to players. There's a lot of saving direct to the coaches. They're dealing with him all day and it's not easy. And so that's also a right. A big part of it is making sure these guys fit into what we want them to do. And the fact that it's not always going to be a fun environment, but it's going to be a productive environment. And certain guys are wired to do that. And certain people aren't. And that's why sometimes, you know, you see people kind of leave or flame out after a year or two, because they just don't want to work there. We'll get into some of the anecdotes because there's my, my favorite one. It might not, it might not even be real about Steve Sarkeesian. There was a great one about Lane Kiffin, and we'll get to some of the other ones. But I'm just curious. Let's step back for a second because there's a million books about leadership, and there's a million books about Nick Saban. What what is it about the the confluence of his skills and his career and Saban? Obviously, that's your beat. But like, why why is this the subject that you wanted to pour your heart into and and take all this time and, and effort to to write for people? Yeah, I think anytime you see someone have a tremendous amount of success, regardless of field, I think there's always that fascination of, you know, like, what do they do? What are they doing that maybe I'm not doing? Or, or how did they get to where they got to? And I think you've seen, you know, in other fields, you know, might be a Steve Jobs book or movie or, or you know, these different kind of powerful, in, influential people, you kind of wonder, like, what's the secret sauce? Like, what is that guy doing that that made them so successful? And so I've always been fascinated by Saban in that regard. You know, I think we see in some ways we see what he wants us to see. And I always kind of wondered, what's it actually like behind the scenes? Is there things that maybe I'm not seeing that are driving this level of success that he's had? What is it that's able to keep him at the level he's at when, again, he's seven years old, he's making more than $10 million a year. Lots of other people would be like, you know, I'm good. I can ease off the gas. He hasn't done that at all. And so I kind of wanted to understand the mentality behind that. And I think in general, again, with any sort of successful leader, there's something that I think you can pick up that might be helpful for you in your life or in any sort of different field, whether it's, you know, running a Fortune 500 company, running a Publix, whatever it might be. I think there's different things that he does, at least I thought that would transfer. And I think when I did this deep dive, I, I thought that absolutely proved to be true. I think there's a lot of things he does that 
can help people in different areas. And just anecdotally, I feel like when I talk to people and business leaders and stuff like that, a lot of them are fascinated by Saban. They the same kind of thing. They want to know like, what is this guy doing that is leading to this, you know, well-run organization. And so I kind of had some of that in mind too, that I feel like those kind of people will be interested in this book. You've gotten access that a lot of people haven't had the opportunity to have. And I'm sure that whether that be with Saban himself or the coaching staff or, you know, everybody in between, how, what did you do to actually hone those relationships and how do you maintain them? And is there stuff that, you know, people get wrong? Like what makes, I know you don't want to brag on yourself, but what sets you apart in terms of access from like somebody else? Yeah, I think it's just that I've, you know, I've been doing it for a bit. So I think that that helps you have some um, familiarity with people. Um, I think that, you know, covering the SEC for the amount of time that I have, I feel like you have relationships around uh, the conference, which I think help uh, because I think it was important to not only talk to people that have, you know, worked for Saban, played for Saban, but also people that have competed against them and people that are at other schools to kind of understand what did they see? What was hard about going up against Saban, which I thought was, was interesting. Um, but I mean, it's, it was tricky. I'm not going to lie. It was tricky. I, I think one of the things that I learned writing this book was uh, not only the amount of respect that people have for Nick Saban, but also there's still some fear involved about getting on his bad side. And there were numerous people that when I reached out to that you think, all right, slam dunk, of course, they're going to talk to me that were very skittish about talking to me or had to call and ask for permission to talk to me. And that was kind of interesting. And there were times just like, uh-oh, like, is anybody going to talk to me for this book? And it worked out fine, but there were just times where you're like, it, it was interesting, you know, people who are older than Nick Saban calling him for permission to talk to me. I, I didn't necessarily anticipate that happening. Um, and, and I think some people he said yes to, and I think other people he said no to. And so that was kind of interesting too, the people that you know, were willing to talk to me and the others that weren't. And I'm sure, and I'm sure Nick himself gave you a good couple hours sit, sitting down, just the two of you, right, to to, to hash out all of his secrets. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, he was very excited. Now, I mean, what's interesting about it is, uh, you know, and I've thought about this too, is that I think for Nick Saban, so much of it is, is about control, right? I think he wants to control his messages. I think he wants to control. You know, if you read this book, this is a guy who's very detail oriented. I mean, he basically has every minute of his day planned out, and so I think for him, any any project that is going to not be controlled by him is always something he's going to be very skittish about being yeah. involved in. And I think that's, I saw something similar happen. I think with the, the Patriots book that uh, Seth Wickersham wrote, I think Bill Belichick kind of had a similar thing, basically like, I'm just going to kind of, I had nothing to do with it, take a step back and whatever right. it is, it is, you know? Well, so basically you're, you're setting out to define the process, right? Like to some degree, like what, what makes the process, the process, why is it successful? And it starts, I think very interestingly, and you write about this and I, I it starts interesting. It's just a psychology professor who just like has the idea and, and like he, he takes that and then turns it into like every minute of his day. Right. Is that, is that what we learned when you set out to, to do this? Is that that's, that's the thing you learned about Saban? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I, I think that, you know, and I think it's sometimes we do want to pinpoint it to one thing. And so there's this one particular game in which Michigan state beats Ohio state. I think it was 1998 or so. And that's kind of what people point to as this is the moment where the process kind of set it, in. It, it knocked him out of the national championship game. Like Ohio state would have played in the right. very first BCS game. Yeah. And so it was a huge game. And I think it was the first real big kind of moment for, um, for Michigan state and Saban, you know, he hadn't had that much success at that point, but I also think when, when I got to, you know, know Saban and some of the stuff he was doing in you know the eighties and nineties, you know, even before then, I think it, he always had it, I think inside him. I think that this guy was, I think maybe just maybe able to help him realize exactly what he was trying to do and maybe 
uh, explain it in a way that maybe even Saban didn't understand what he was doing, but kind of pinpointing it in a, a big picture way of like, just focus on this. And I think it's, it's very simple when you think about it. it's focus on the process, not the results. You know, that's a very simple concept. It's obviously much harder to live your life that way every day. And that's such a huge part of what Saban does and what he is trying to instill in everyone in his organization is that we can't think about just winning national championships. We can't think about just winning SEC championships. Like we have to focus on every day is just as important as the next day. And I think you saw him reference this in the off season recently with some of those wide receivers that he basically thought didn't step up in the moment when Jamison Williams went down in the national championship game, you know, they had some young guys, they have to get, you know, they're getting thrusted into the spotlight, didn't really capitalize on it. And you could, Saban's kind of used that as an example of, that's why you need to be preparing every day like it's important and not just the national championship game. And so that's such a big part of what they do. And I mean, he believes it. You know, I've talked to people over there. Well, they'll say, you know, it'll be April and he will almost, <laughs> like, he will at least convince himself that if they don't do what they need to do that day, that they're going to lose to UT Chattanooga in September. You know, like he has convinced himself <laughs> that like, we don't do this every day. We're going to lose. and It's all going to fall apart, which maybe is not the most like fun way to live your life, but it's obviously been incredibly successful. And that's, you know, so much of what powers that organization is that kind of mantra. It's interesting that a minute ago to me, you were, you were talking about um, people being afraid of not having like a second chance or getting on Saban's bad side. But one of the chapters of your book is called um, like what happens when you give distressed athletes another chance or giving distressed athletes another chance. Can you talk a little bit about that and like the thought behind it? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I think people, have, I think also referred to it as like the Nick Saban, like rehabilitation center. And I think he has done a really good job of, you know, capitalizing on what I think is really like a market inefficiency. It really started with Mike Grow, who I think now is with the Giants. Um, I was, his dad was Al Grow, you know, the former Jets coach and UVA coach. And Mike Grow got fired. I think he was about 30 years old, UVA offensive coordinator, trying to figure out what to do. And Saban had the idea of kind of bringing him on as essentially like an, an intern, you know, graduate assistant. This guy was just an offensive coordinator in the ACC brings in Mike Grow in this very, you know, low-level role, but Grow likes it. Saban seems to think it worked out well. And then it seems to spark kind of an idea in his head that we can, you know, we can get some of these guys who have value to come into our organization. They bring what, you know, the skills they have. We get them at a super discounted rate. We're not asking them to do that much. And we've seen, I mean, Butch Jones, Steve Sarkeesian started that way. I mean, Mike Loxley, Billy Napier. I mean, guys who have gone on to have a lot of success initially came into the Alabama organization as analysts. And I think it took a lot of foresight for him to see that potential. And I think it also, one of the things that I think Saban is really good at is that he's not worried about putting big personalities in a room. You know, he's not worried about losing power. And of course, all the success he's had helps with that. But, you know, he hires Bill O'Brien, a guy who was an NFL head coach, you know, for, I guess, what, a decade or so before that. I mean, that's a big personality. That's an alpha guy from everything I've heard. And like, Saban's just not worried about it. Like, we're going to butt heads sometimes, but that's fine. I think you bring value to our organization. We'll do it. And I think there are a lot of other coaches that don't do that. You see a lot of other leaders that don't do that. They surround themselves with yes people or people that are just going to give them what they want. And Saban's right. the opposite of that. He wants people that will challenge him. He wants people that bring different skills to the table. And so I think that's been incredibly successful for them, obviously. And you know they've got a whole, whole factory at this point in which people get fired and 
they get a big buyout and they probably end up at, you know, in Alabama in a year or two. I mean, it just seems that every year there's some big name that's there. We're, we're going to, we're going to pay you because you couldn't beat Alabama. Now we're going to pay you to go work for Alabama and beat us again. Is I, I think there's a line in there somewhere. About yeah. That. I mean, it's, yeah. Somebody at a different school said like, yeah, we're basically paying them to beat us twice, you know, and that's, it is <laughs> wild. Ridiculous. And, you know, like Butch Jones in some ways gets fired because he can't beat Alabama. Right. And so they pay him, I think eight or $9 million, if not more in a buyout. And then he just goes to Alabama and helps Alabama, you know, I mean, it's kind of wild and I could see it being very frustrating for other organizations that, you know, that they have to deal with that because it's such a you know machine over there. at this point. All right. I, I want to get to Sark because that's my single favorite sentence in the entire book. I want to get to Sark, Uh-oh. but cause you, cause you gloss, you kind of mention it, you roll the grenade out there and then you kind of move on pretty quickly, but I want to get to that in a second, but I'm curious because you cover the whole, the whole league and there's so much out there that is Saban now, right? Whether it's Mel Tucker or, Cristobal or Napier or Purdy Smart now or you know whatever there's there's dozens of them now who do you think has sort of taken all of the stuff that you wrote about who's the one who's the who are the guys that are you better now able to analyze how good a job Billy Napier is going to do at Florida or whatever because you now understand the Saban system a little bit more and the process that you can kind of judge all right these are the guys that know fish Jimbo Fisher is another one like what how has this gained giving you insight into the other coaches now? Yeah, I think the easy answer is that Kirby has embraced it the most. Um, and obviously they just won a national championship. So that's an easy, obvious answer. But I think even before they won that, I would have still said Kirby in part, just because I think he has the same relentless attitude when it comes to recruiting. Um, I mean, I think, and I write about it in the book, you know, after Kirby went to Georgia, you know, there was kind of some kind of ruffled some feathers back at Alabama because he took some of the Alabama recruiting violation, recruiting evaluations and used them against Alabama. Kind of like, hey, this is what Alabama thinks about you. This is where you're on their board. We have you here in our board, which is kind of a ruthless move. But that's kind of, you know, I think Saban, I think, was both upset about it and probably respected it a little bit. You know, I think that I always thought Kirby was the one who had that kind of relentless attitude that was most similar uh, to, to save it and just wants to win. And obviously he's the first one to win a national championship um, out of kind of the current most, most recent crop. Obviously Jimbo did um, at Florida state earlier. I think Billy fits a lot of it too. He did it at a smaller level. And so I think we're all curious to how it translates, but I thought he did a really good job of taking pieces of the process and yeah. using it with the resources he had at Louisiana. I think a lot of people think that he is very similar in terms of attention to detail of Saban. You know, there's eight, so he talks a little different, he acts a little different, but there was a lot of the kind of uh, inner DNA that I think is similar to how Saban does things uh, at Alabama. And obviously Jimbo's had a lot of success, though it doesn't seem like he would want to claim any of that right now. I, th- I know he made it a point to talk about much more Bobby Bowden influence than Nick Saban, but there's no doubt that he obviously has been influenced by Saban as well in their time together at LSU. And again, I think with we'll see what Billy does at Florida, but if you look at Saban, Kirby, Jimbo. I mean, those are the top three recruiters in the SEC. You know, and again, it just all eventually kind of comes back to that. Either you can recruit at that level or you can't. And we saw some other, you know, Saban disciples over the years, Derek Dooley and, you know, some of these other guys who they just didn't have that in them. They didn't have that ability to grind every day to sign the top recruiting classes. And that's why some of them failed. I, I, I think that's what Cristobal is going to be able to do at Miami, frankly, if he, if he gets the resources to do it. So, Aaron, Aaron yeah. go ahead. It does seem like there's a direct, and this isn't necessarily a question, but it does seem like there's a direct correlation kind of between 
the guy, and I know Jimbo and Saban have been loud lately, but as a general rule, they're not, you know, the Dan Mullen of the SEC that's out in front of everything being loud. They're not Lane Kiffin. It's like they're putting their head down and they're in love with that or made themselves fall in love with that day-to-day, -day, I guess, grind, for lack of a better word, just every single thing falling in place. And you bring up Bill Belichick, I think of Tim Corbin, of, like, those people that are just every single day you, like, rinse and repeat and so if you had to put your finger on it, would you say that and recruiting and then those and then that daily grind, are those the two most important things? Yeah, I think that's a really important part of it. And one of the chapters I get into, um, I think I forget the exact chapter name, but basically it's how Saban is almost like a thoroughbred racehorse that he almost has blinders on. Like he has this really unique ability to when he's in the office, if he's in an hour meeting, he is locked into that hour meeting. He's not thinking oh man, what am I going to have for dinner later? Or like, oh, I probably need to call Miss Terry back after this meeting. Like he's just locked in. Whatever he needs to do in that meeting, he is doing. And, you know, you can just see, I mean, he's not on Twitter. He's not on Facebook. You know, like I, I think we all, for what we do, love Lane Kiffin and all the theatrics that he brings to the table. But like, if you just think about how much time he's probably wasted on Twitter. You know, and now I guess his dog has a Twitter account. Like Nick Saban's <laughs> dog is not going to have a Twitter account. You know, and that's not to say Wayne Kiffin's bad at what he does because he's obviously not. But there's just a different priority in terms of what they want to do. And so, you know, it's and that's and I think, it, you know, in some ways he's so intense that you do hear some stories that sometimes rub people the wrong way. You know, I've heard stories from people where, you know, he's walking down the hallway and you pass by him and like he doesn't say hello to you, you know, and people are like, man, it's kind of rude. Like, why is this guy do this? And then like, I talked to other people who, you know, like him and maybe this is a favorable take on it, but that like, he's so locked into whatever he's doing. He literally does not even see you. Like he is just in his own world and he just did not even see you walk past him. And that's just, you know, that's just who he is. And so, you know, that, again, that, that can rub some people the wrong way, but it's, it's been really important to, I think the success he's had that he can do whatever he needs to do in that moment fully and then when it's done, it's almost like he closes the, the drawer and it's like, all right, that's done. Next thing, open that drawer. And it just goes bit by bit over the course of his entire day. There, there was a great coach here in Nashville, Lipscomb, one of the greatest coaches, basketball coaches of all time, Don Meyer, the, the late great Don Meyer. And he always said to everybody, like, what are you, you going to do next? doesn't matter if you had a dunk or a three-pointer or bounce the ball off your foot. It's all about what are you going to do next? And I do feel like the process boils down to like literally – what are the what's going to happen next in your life in the next 10 seconds like focus on those 10 seconds being great and then you can worry about the next 10 seconds after that it's it's this it's like breaking the world down into these minute details um which is fascinating because you, you bring up kiffin and it's so interesting to me that kiffin is such a polar opposite in almost every sense of the of how he operates and functions but it's also what alabama needed to become alabama and what they are today and then of course it didn't end well of course it, it of course it they, it didn't last like it's, you know, it's when you meet, you, you meet a significant other and you have a really great time. And then you both realize like, this isn't going to work. Uh, it's so fascinating to me how important a role he plays in all of this. Uh, and then of course, to be like taking calls in the middle of practice meetings and stuff. <laughs> yeah. It, it ended poorly at the end. Um, and I think, uh, I think one of the former players that I quoted in the books says that Wayne was basically a ticking time bomb. Like they knew eventually it was going to blow up. It's just, you're hoping to get as much success as you can out of him before he blows up. But yeah, I mean, those guys, I mean, not to get too old school here, but like, almost like the classic odd couple, you know, like they're just two very different guys. They're wired very differently. What they like to do is very differently. And you just saw that play out. But I think, like you said, I think it's exactly what Alabama needed at that time. I think that they needed to evolve. I think Kiffin was the perfect guy to do that for them. 
And I think it says a lot about both of those guys that I think they probably knew going in, this is not really my guy and this is not my guy, you know, and Kiffin's talked about, you know, working for Pete Carroll and coming up that way. Incredibly different than Nick Saban. You know, <laughs> some of the offensive coordinators Nick Saban had before, you know, Kiffin. I mean, Jim McElwain, good coach, you know, fits more probably that Saban style. Um, Kiffin is very different from that. But I think they both kind of realized, all right, I'm probably going to be out of my comfort zone with you a lot, but I think it's probably going to help our organization. It's probably going to help our players to do what you bring to the table, what I bring to the table. And I think Kiffin learned a lot from Saban. I think Saban learned a lot from Kiffin and they obviously had a lot of success at a time where I figured it was really important for them. You know, there was the, and I write about this in the book around that time is when you, the, the famous, the dynasty is dead talk was starting to happen. You know, they lose in 2014 to Ohio state, 2015, they lose to Ole Miss um, when they started Cooper Bateman, which just looking back on it, it's still such a weird thing. I, was, I remember being at that game and just being like, what is happening here? Uh, but there was that moment where people felt like, man, Alabama's slipping here. What's happening? And Kiffin, I think, was a big part of getting them back on top. They win the national championship in 2015. And then, you know, obviously they continue their run on ripping off some more national championships after that. But Kiffin was a key part of that. Which which brings us right to Stark, because all these four questions, uh, the last four or five questions we've talked about, which is, attention to detail, reclamation projects on the coaching staff, and frankly, rebuilding the dynasty after sort of like 18 and 19, right, where they don't get the job done against Clemson and they get blown out and then they don't get the job done against LSU and LSU takes over. And then we get to, to 2020, which is Sark. And th there's a line in the book where you say that Nick Saban, uh, and again, I'll paraphrase here. You can kind of correct me if I'm wrong, that basically he was offering Sarkeesian head coach and waiting status, for lack of a better term, that Steve Sarkeesian could actually have been the guy that took over at Alabama. Do you actually believe that that, is, that was a real thing or just a tactic to keep Sarkeesian in Alabama and not take the Texas job? Great question. Um, <laughs> I, I, so it is a really good question. I, I think so. I think it's, I think there's two things there. I'll say one, I think that like Saban had an incredible amount of respect for Sark. I mean, really, really, really liked the guy. And I think, you know, head coaching and waiting stuff or wherever that kind of works, you know, like that always gets tricky and messy. And so, you know, we've seen it play out for other people. But I think the way that how it was kind of framed to me, especially it was around the same time that Auburn wanted to interview Sark. And he was one of their top candidates, obviously, ended up hiring Brian Harson, And, you know, that's a whole nother uh, story for another day. <laughs> but uh, I think that there was there could be a little bit of both. I think of, hey, you know, if you play your cards right here, like you could be the guy to replace me. Um, and is that in part to, hey, don't take that Auburn job? Maybe that's part of it. Um, but it's also I mean, they were prepared to really bump up his salary, too. I mean, he was going to make a lot of money. He was already making a lot of money, but he was going to make even more. And so I know that they were thought very highly of him, Saban in particular, and was willing to go to bat for him. And so, you know, I think that would have been really interesting in a few years from now, if Sark was still there, how that would have played out. But I think especially when Texas got involved, I mean, that was it's too good of a job, I think, to pass up. But, you know, if Texas never comes in and it's just an Auburn situation, you know, that, that could have swayed Sark to, to wait it out, you know, and, and see if he could you know be the guy to replace the guy. I saw that. Fine bomb, which is, this is a very high compliment because Paul says what he wants to, but he called your book an absolute masterpiece, um, which I'm just going to make you really uncomfortable and brag on yeah, you. Sure. But um, 
Um, and although maybe Jimbo isn't going to pick it up and really dive into it, um, a lot of people that are, you know, have a name in sports have been highly complimentary of what you've been able to do. What did you find? I'm fascinated by the process that this had to have taken you to get there. What did you find to be the most difficult part of writing this? Well, I hope that uh, you both think it's an absolute masterpiece as well. Uh, we'll let the people be the judge of that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So this is the first book I ever wrote. So there's always going to be that challenge of figuring out, you know, kind of the rhythm of how to do things. Um, that was an interesting part of it. I think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you just don't know what the kind of reaction you're going to get until you do it. And so you start reaching out to people and then like, you know, people are like, yeah, hey, I'll call you tomorrow. And then just ghost you. And you're like, uh oh, like this is going to be a little trickier of a book than I, I thought it was going to be. Um, and then I think the other thing, I think it was both a good and bad thing for me was that, you know, writing it during the pandemic, you know, it eliminated a lot of opportunities to spend time with people in person, uh, which would have been something that I would have done. I would have done a lot more travel. There's a lot of events that I would have gone to, to, you know, get interviews with people and stuff like that. Wasn't able to do that. I think where maybe it helped me a little bit was maybe more people had time to do long phone interviews. And so did a lot of those where, you know, you're talking to people for three, four hours where I don't know if they would have committed that much time to me, but they're like, well, it's a pandemic. What else am I doing? And so I think that helped kind of helped and hurt me in both ways. Um, but it's just, you know, it's, it's challenging in any way you're trying to take this guy and, you know, encapsulate who he is and what he does. And, you know, you hope that you did it as accurately and fairly as possible and, you know, trying to try to put enough stuff in this book that people will find interesting, but also, you know, it's not meant to be, you know, a, a gossipy type book, you know, maybe somebody will do that one down the line, but I think it's just meant to, you know, have real interesting stuff. I hope there's a lot of stuff that people have never read before. At least I, there's a lot of stuff that I had never heard before that I put in there. So I hope people find that as well, but, you know, just trying to incorporate all that different stuff was tricky. Yeah. I mean, it's a complex system. Like you mentioned, I mean, we're asking you, you know, what are the two most important things like recruiting in the process, but it's just so much more complex than <laughs> well, that. And, and John, I don't think anybody doesn't know a lot of the big picture stuff you write about. I think what, what is interesting is learning how it all works on sort of a granular level. When we talk about like bringing in coaches or recruiting certain players or recruiting in general or the process or fourth quarter conditioning program, four quarter conditioning programs, or, you know, getting started in Ohio and then Michigan State and like, you know, his relationship with Jimmy Sexton. Like there's all this stuff that that sort of bakes in and becomes who this person is. Um, is, is there anything about second second and 26? Is there anything about the championship game in there that people should be excited about? Yeah, so I think it's one of my favorite chapters is looking at how absolutely obsessed Nick Saban is about being prepared. And so one of my favorite <laughs> anecdotes, which I mean, I had never heard before. I doubt other people have. Uh, this guy who worked for him at Toledo, uh, you know, he answers his phone. It's Christmas Day, and Nick Saban is his boss at the time. Calls him, was like, "Hey, like LC, like what are you doing?" And he's like, "I mean, it's like Christmas Day. I'm hanging out with my wife." And he's like, "You want to come <laughs> over and watch some film?" And he's just like, "It's like it's Christmas, man. Like, I'm like, you trying to get me divorced?" He's like, "What? You don't want to come over and watch film with me right now?" And like Saban was like dead serious. Like, just like, what else are you doing? It's Christmas. Come over and watch film. And like that to me speaks to who that guy is to some extent. Like he is some ways just wild and how much he wants to be prepared, but. I think it stems from, you know, just wanting to be prepared for any situation. And so I think when we think to second and 26, one of the most famous plays probably in college football history, um, Saban's been part of another one, kick six, which he probably isn't as happy to remember, but second 26, we're always going to think about, wow, like Saban had that really wild out of characteristic decision to bench Jalen at halftime, put Tua in. But I think it's actually really shows all that went, if you know, kind of went, went behind the scenes, it was really all a long buildup. It wasn't a, yep. you know, decision in the heat of the yep. battle. It was, 
this was building for a long time and they saw a lot behind the scenes that Mm -hmm. when the time comes, we're going to have to do this at some point. And Jalen was always able to kind of find a way to hold on, but it was wobbly for a long time. And so I just think that it's such a great example of kind of why Saban does what he does, why he puts so much emphasis on the preparation so that in that moment, when you're down big in a national championship game, that you can feel confident based on all the work you've done leading up to it to put in a true freshman in that situation and think that he can help you. And obviously he did. And they win in that famous way in overtime. But I think that's, you know, it's just different compared to what people might know about it. The book, The Leadership Secrets of Nick Saban. It's your first book. Congratulations on newsstands here coming out in a couple of weeks. So pre-order it right now, everywhere you get your books. Uh, John, one more time. Fringe Element is a podcast about SEC football and it's brought to you by Jaspers. Okay, Jaspers. Do you want me to do a different one this time? If you can, you got about 30 seconds. You're really using them. I know. I'm trying to do my best. Uh, Fringe Element is a podcast brought to you by Jaspers. Um, I'm trying to, I don't even know what their food is. Uh, they have awesome. Uh, it's awesome. It's amazing. It's awesome. They have my favorite old fashioned anywhere I've been. There you go. There you they go. They do have good old fashioned. They have, do have a good I hope they do. That is my they favorite do. drink. So they I hope they follow them yeah. on Twitter, order the book, go to al.com, go to our YouTube page at 440 Sports, follow Aaron Dugan as well. My name is Braden Gall. Thank you guys all for hanging out with us. This has been Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network. <laughs>